This morning I wish to speak to you about the providence of God, and there's just so much in the Bible that talks to us about that doctrine that it's difficult to choose the text that I should use. I have chosen, however, three psalms central to the Psalter and which go together, long psalms, but I'd like to read them for you as they declare the various facets of the providence of God that should lead us to praise Him. Turn in your Bibles then this morning to Psalm 103, 4, and 5. And though this is a much longer reading than we are accustomed to, I would bid you to pay reverent attention to the Word of God as it celebrates for us God's providence. Beginning our reading then with the 103rd Psalm, hear now God's Word. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy desire with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle. Jehovah executeth righteous acts and judgments for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his doings unto the children of Israel. Jehovah is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us after our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the loving kindness of Jehovah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his precepts to do them. Jehovah hath established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless Jehovah, ye his angels, that are mighty in strength, that fulfill his word, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless Jehovah, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his, that do his pleasure. Bless Jehovah, all ye his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless Jehovah, O my soul. Bless Jehovah, O my soul. O Jehovah, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh winds his messengers, flames of fire his ministers, who laid the foundation of the earth that it should not be moved forever. Thou coverest it with the deep as with a vesture, the waters stood above the mountains, at thy rebuke they fled, at the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. He sendeth forth springs into the valleys that run among the mountains. 
They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their habitation. They sing among the branches. He watereth the mountains from his chambers. The earth is filled with the fruit of thy works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread that strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of Jehovah are filled with moisture, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted, where the birds make their nest. As for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the conies. He appointed the moon for seasons, the sun, knowing his going down. Thou maketh darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest creep forth. The young lions roar after their prey, and seek their food from God. The sun ariseth, they get them away, and lay them down in their dens. Man goeth forth unto his work, and to his labor until the evening. O Jehovah, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. Yonder is the sea, great and wide, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There is Leviathan, whom thou hast formed to play therein. These wait all for thee, that thou mayest give them their food in due season. Thou givest unto them they gather. Thou openest thy hand, they are satisfied with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die, and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the ground. Let the glory of Jehovah endure forever. Let Jehovah rejoice in his works, who looketh on the earth, and it trembleth. He toucheth the mountains, and they smoke. I will sing unto Jehovah as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have any being. Let my meditation be sweet unto him. I will rejoice in Jehovah. Let sinners be consumed out of the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless Jehovah, O my soul. Praise ye Jehovah. O give thanks unto Jehovah. Call upon his name. Make known among the peoples his doings. Sing unto him. Sing praises unto him. Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek Jehovah. Seek ye Jehovah and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is Jehovah our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. When they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and sojourners in it, and they went about from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong, yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. And he called for a famine upon the land. He brake the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them. Joseph was sold for a servant. His feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in chains of iron, until the time that his word came to pass. The word of Jehovah tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of peoples, and let him go free. 
he made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance, to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their adversaries. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They set them among his signs and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against his word. And he turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land swarmed with frogs in the chamber of their kings. He spake, and there came swarm of flies and lice in all their borders, and gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also in their fig trees, and brake the trees of their borders. He spake, and the locusts came, and the grasshopper, and that without number, and did eat up every herb in their land, and did eat up the fruit of their ground, and smote also the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. And he brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. They asked, and he brought quails and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy word, and Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took the labor of the peoples in possession, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise ye, Jehovah. And thus far the reading of God's word. More than any particular blessing that we have enjoyed over this last year, I think more fundamental than any specific thing you might remember that God has done for you, this holiday of Thanksgiving is by its very nature a celebration of the Christian doctrine of providence. Yes, we can stop and we will stop later to think about specific joys, blessings that we have received from God. But I'd like for you this morning to think what underlies the giving of that thanks, what is really the heart and soul of this holiday and that's the doctrine of providence. When we contemplate the specific blessings we have received, and we are led beyond mere happiness for them to thanksgiving, we are giving expression to the truth that a personal God, the living and true God, the personal God of heaven and earth, has been providential toward us. You stop and think about it in an impersonal and atheistic universe. It doesn't make any sense to offer thankfulness for one's good fortune. It makes no sense to be thankful to cosmic randomness for the things that have happened to me this year. And so thanksgiving, more than happiness, thanksgiving, which goes beyond just saying, oh, I'm glad things have worked out well for me in this or that way this year. Thanksgiving is a uniquely Christian response to the world and our lives in the world. Now, what do we mean when we speak of God's providence? The term providence comes from two Latin words, meaning to look ahead, and thus to plan in advance. Accordingly, we speak of making provision, comes from the word providence. We make provision when we make plans, when we look ahead, and we fulfill needs. When we speak of God's providence, when we as Christians confess the providence of God, 
We are uh, confessing our conviction, our heartfelt belief that one, God has planned all things in advance. He has planned our existence and he has planned the very terms of our lives. And secondly, we confess that he has made provision for fulfilling our needs. God has planned all things and God has made provision for all of our needs. Now, this belief in the providence of God is plainly taken for granted upon every page of Scripture, isn't it? For instance, think of David praying in the 139th Psalm, Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Even there in the uttermost parts of the sea shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Indeed, the doctrine of providence, when it was secularized in the history of Western philosophy, was considered the invisible hand in history. The invisible hand. This is because men didn't want to speak more religiously and personally of an almighty creator God who was active in the affairs of men, directing the events of history to a particular goal. Providence speaks of the hand of God being upon us and that for our good. God has planned everything. He has beset me before and behind, David says. Not one of my steps is unnumbered by God before I even took it. God plans all things and God is present to my life. God pursues me, whether it be in heaven above or in Sheol below. God pursues me everywhere. God is with me and cares for me and makes provision for my lives. Indeed, it was a firm belief in God's sustaining and God's governing providence that fortified Daniel in the lion's den. How could Daniel have undergone that if he didn't believe in the providence of God? It was the sustaining and governing providence of God that emboldened Queen Esther to proclaim about going before the emperor, if I perish, I perish. It was the sustaining and governing providence of God that enabled Joseph to say to his treacherous brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. All of these attitudes of David and of Esther, of Daniel, of Joseph, of all the writers of Scripture, all these attitudes and remarks by the saints of Scripture rest fully upon their faith in a providential God. Chapter 5 in the Westminster Confession of Faith is entitled, Of Providence. In section 1 of that chapter, we read these words. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Oh, there's a lot packed into that succinct expression in our confession of faith about the providence of God. It is God the Creator the one who upholds all things that is providential toward us. He is the one that directs and disposes and governs everything, all creatures, all things, from the least to the greatest of them. And he does this according to a most high and holy and wise will that is immutable, so that we are led to praise him for his wisdom and his power, his justice, his goodness, and his mercy. That's what Thanksgiving is all about remembering the providence of God. 
Now, the doctrine of God's providence is integral to our belief in creation, and it's integral to our belief in redemption, and it's integral to our belief in the final consummation. Think about that for a moment. First of all, the creation doctrine. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin declares, and I quote now, no one seriously believes that the world was made by God who is not persuaded that he takes care of his own works. Calvin says, don't bother me with this idea of deism. Don't give me this God who winds up the universe and then steps back and lets it run. No one really believes in creation unless he believes God cares for the creation, unless he believes God remains in contact with the creation, unless he believes that God shows care and oversight of what he has made. In that same place, this, that, that's the Institute's book 1, chapter 16, by the way, in the same place, Calvin explains, to make God a momentary creator who once for all finished his work would be cold and barren. And we must differ from profane men, especially in that we see the presence of divine power shining as much in the continuing state of the universe as in its inception. Beautiful words. Calvin says, we are not like profane men with their cold and barren idea of the inception of the universe. We see the glory of God shining, not simply in creation, but we see the one who created continuing to be active in his world and his glory shining through everything that takes place today, shining in the continuing state of the universe. You see, it would be mockery of God, wouldn't it? It would be insulting to God to suggest that he made the world without any definite idea of what he intended to do with it. That he just got bored one day and made the world and said, let's see what happens now. It would be mockery and insult to the sovereign creator to suggest that he made the world without a definite idea of what he intended to do with it or without so governing it as to adhere to his purposes. God is not arbitrary, and God is not thoughtless and careless. He doesn't make something and then just turn his back on it. God didn't create the world to be an isolated power independent of him, some other force or condition with which he must now reckon and to which he must react. No, the world is not a reality that has its own separate existence, like some cosmic quasi-God alongside the Creator. Rather, the world ever depends upon the sustaining power of God. If God were but for a moment to withhold his providential care of the world, it would cease to be immediately. Paul tells the Greek philosophers in Athens in the 17th chapter of Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. God is the very environment of our life. God is the very sustaining force of our lives and of this entire world. And so the doctrine of providence is integral to our belief in creation. But you know, just as much, the doctrine of providence is integral to our belief in redemption and what God will do to consummate history. Not only would the doctrine of creation be futile without the corresponding doctrine of God's providence, so also will the doctrines of redemption and consummation. When God created this world, he did so for the sake of communion and fellowship with man. Better, he did so for the sake of our fellowship with him. But sin 
introduced a dreadful disruption of that fellowship, an alienation necessitated by the holy justice of God. Now what comforts us in the midst of that, that sin has come into this world? What comforts us when we look at the pain and the suffering of this world round about us? What joy can there be in a universe where sin has now alienated us from God and brought all the terrible consequences of unrighteousness? Well, I tell you, the only comfort is the doctrine of providence, isn't it? It's our comfort and our conviction that even sin did not take place apart from the personal and wise plan of God and that God has and God will use the presence of sin to bring glory to his name by overpowering sin and redeeming our lives from destruction, all to the praise of his wonder and his grace. You see, it's providence that assures us of these things. And it's God's providence which brought it about that in the fullness of time, the Son of God came into this world, made flesh through birth to a virgin woman. How could any of that be? How could that be if God were not in control of the universe? How could that be if God's hand did not direct every event to its ordained end? How could any of this have taken place were it not for God's all-powerful intervention into and control of history? You see, it's because of God's providential plan, it's because he governs the world that Christ fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. That wasn't fortuitous. That wasn't by chance that those things happened. It was by God's almighty power and providence that Christ worked miracles and died for our sins and rose from the dead in power, having ascended now to the right hand of God. From there, in the providence of God, he sent forth the Holy Spirit into the church, by whose divine power men are born again. Men are illumined to see the truth of the gospel. Men are brought to faith and repentance, are progressively sanctified and made fit for heaven. All of this from beginning to end is God's plan. It is God's doing, and it's dependent upon God's powerful work in our world. Every one of these truths presupposes that God has a plan and purpose which he powerfully fulfills in this world for the benefit and for the provision of his people. 1 Timothy 4.10, which often Calvinists shy away from, is a verse that we ought to magnify, you see. We trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. God in his providence shows saving mercy to all men. Not that they will eternally be saved, but he is especially the Savior of those who believe. Indeed, it's for the sake of the elect that he sustains this world, that he governs all things. Listen to Ephesians 1.22. He put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him to be head over all things for the sake of the church. Indeed, the Westminster Confession tells us this in section 7 of chapter 5. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. You know, if you belong to the people of God, everything that God has done in history, everything that God has done for the redemption of men, everything that God is doing to bring about the consummation is done for your sake. 
He's the Savior of all men. He gives life and breath to all things. He's good to all, but especially does He save His people. And He now is subjecting all things under the feet of His Son for the sake of the church. Only because of the providence of God can those who are redeemed by Christ, those who are born again by the Holy Spirit, say with comfort and say with the assurance of the Apostle Paul, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. To make that confession when you do not believe in the all-powerful personal creator of heaven and earth, to make that confession when you don't believe God controls and plans all events according to a wise and blessed plan, to recite the words of Romans 8.28 without a belief in the providence of God is whistling in the dark. How can you be sure things are going to work together for good? How can you be confident as God's child that he's working all things out in your life and in the life of your brothers and sisters in Christ for the glory of his son and for the advance of the church and for the benefit of his people? How can we be sure of that if we don't think God is in control, that there is a hand in history that brings about everything by his plan? And basic to our belief that history has a purpose, that history has a goal, that history is working toward a final day of reckoning with our Creator, where the redeemed of God and the rebels against God will be forever separated, basic to our belief that God will bring about perfect conditions of fellowship with Him in a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells is the underpinning of divine providence. Where is history going? What's it all about, Alfie? Why are we here? What's God doing? If you don't believe in the providence of God, there is no meaning to history. There's just the mind of man trying to gather the random particulars into some kind of pattern that man's mind imposes on history. History is not aimless. History is not random according to the Christian. It is governed and directed by God according to his own design in order to accomplish his ordained purpose, that all things will eventually be summed up in Christ and he might be all in all. And so what I'm trying to tell you this morning is Christian faith entails the doctrine of providence. What we see is that our entire Christian faith, our belief in creation, our belief about the fall and God's redemptive work, our own personal coming to faith in Christ and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and our belief that history will reach its climax at the day of judgment, our entire Christian faith logically rests upon the fundamental truth of God's providence. To be a Christian is to profess primarily and to profess pervasively throughout everything else we say, it is to profess a conviction that God plans and God provides for all things. And this of course is precisely what we're professing in our Thanksgiving celebration. That's what this holiday is all about. It's the profession that all good things come from the hand of a generous almighty God who sustains and governs the world by his own wise plan. What I'm suggesting is that Thanksgiving is, in essence, a Christian profession about the world and about history. It's a profession of God's personal providence in our lives. There is no Thanksgiving apart from the doctrine of providence. You see, only the Christian faith teaches providence. Not only is thanksgiving, in essence, a Christian profession, but thanksgiving is uniquely 
a Christian profession. No other religion, no other philosophy about the world and man's place in the world teach creation from nothing by a personal God and teach his ever-present sustaining and governing of the world. And, and just here you must remember, of course, that Judaism and Islam and the cults can be called Christian heresies. What they believe about divine providence, they believe based upon Christianity and biblical revelation, though they have perverted much about it. But putting those aside, my point is that only biblical Christianity sees the world and history in terms of God's personal providence. Consider by contrast Hinduism. Hinduism doesn't have us have a day set apart of thanksgiving to a personal God. Hinduism says everything is one. I mean, there are, there are no blessings because in this world everything we see is an illusion. Think about Buddhism. Buddhism is an atheistic religion. Buddhism says we must just get right with the universe. There's no personal thanks in Buddhism. Or in Taoism that teaches that there is a force, the Tao, the life force, the compelling force that flows through everything, the rocks and the streams and people, and we're all one and we're just part of it, floating around with it. There's no personal thanks in Taoism. Zoroastrianism teaches that the God who provides good and light is counterbalanced by the God who provides wickedness and darkness. And who knows who's going to be on top? There's no thanks for the providence of God there. Think about the astrological cults that don't look to God and thank Him for what's happened, but feel that we are oppressed and governed by the pattern of the stars. Only Christianity could have a Thanksgiving Day holiday. Consider by contrast, if you want to look at philosophies, the ancient Epicureans. The Epicureans, most of us think that's what we do after we finish church and go eat our turkey and stuff ourselves. We're being Epicureans. That isn't the doctrine of Epicurus. In fact, Epicurus would never have done that if he lived up to what he taught. Epicurus said, pleasure is the greatest good, but you've got to be careful. If you overindulge and you have social diseases afflict you or a hangover from getting drunk or you're stuffed so much that you get sick, that that isn't pleasure. So Epicurus said, a little wine and a little cheese and good conversation with your friends. That's it. You see, he wasn't one of these party-type guys that we think about today as being Epicurean. But Epicurus taught that we should seek pleasure and not worry about the gods because everything in the world is made up of atoms falling through space. And though the Epicurean atomistic view of the universe is in many ways different from the atomism of our modern scientific world, it is nevertheless basically the same in that all of reality is broken down into atoms falling through space. Matter, little bits of it, in motion. Now, where is their thanksgiving if we're nothing but matter falling through space? Little bits, little atoms just floating through space. I mean, something happened that was nice for you, right? The sun shined for you one day. Your crops grew. You're able to harvest them. You had a nice meal. Somebody said something nice to you. All of that happened by chance. That's just, you know, sound and fury signifying nothing if you're an Epicurean atomist. Think about evolutionary naturalism. You know, the evolutionists tell us that man is just a little, you know, bit of advanced slime. The slime that oozed out of the slime, the evolutionists will tell us. Well, what thanks is there in an evolutionary universe? We just happen to be at the cutting edge of the development of the biological world. 
Think about modern science, or logical positivism, as we call it in philosophy. The view that we can't know anything beyond our immediate senses and sensations. Well, if we can't know anything beyond that, we can't remember our, our blessings, we can't interpret our blessings, and we certainly can't think of a God who is the source of our blessings. Think of the Marxist, which is officially an atheistic philosophy, or existentialism that says man is an absurdity in the universe. He must make his own meaning out of life. Is there any thanks in these philosophies? No, there isn't. Any thanks that is found among those who adhere to these philosophies, any thanks that these kinds of people would have would be inconsistent with what they tell us about the universe. Consider also, by lamentable contrast, deism and Arminianism which in their own ways teach that there is a personal God, but a God who is far removed from active involvement in the world. Not a God that's the personal, all-controlling sovereign over everything that happens. How can there be thanks? Any thanks that's given is given to others who have provided our blessings or to ourselves for our own good fortune. We did it by our own free will. God's not active in the world. God wouldn't intervene in that way. So stop and think about it. Biblical Christianity. Calvinistic, reformed, biblical Christianity is the only source of thanksgiving. By rejecting the doctrine of providence, the modern world has come to a crisis of philosophical, psychological, and religious dimensions. What is man apart from providence? How do we interpret man's propensity to evil apart from providence? How do we understand death apart from providence. What do we make of the dreadful tragedies in the natural world? The dreadful tragedies in the social world apart from the providence of God? What is our place and what is our significance in the universe if there is no providence? You know, science tells man that nothing can be known beyond the limited evidence of our immediate senses. Certainly nothing can be known of a transcendent spiritual God. Psychology tells men that religious feelings are only the projection of their inner needs. There's no objective reality to which those feelings refer. Historians are telling men that the catastrophes of this century refute any notion of a good and all-powerful God active in the affairs of the world. And as a result, as a result, modern men have ceased to understand what sustains the world. They've ceased to understand what accounts for the provision of human needs in this chance universe. They've ceased to understand if there's any purpose and meaning in life. Consequently, devoid of any conviction about divine providence, modern men cannot truly and sincerely celebrate Thanksgiving. You see, it doesn't surprise me that men sleep in today and don't go to church services. The men get together and stuff their bellies and watch their football games and then wonder why do we do this? Because they have nothing to be thankful for in their view of the universe. Thanksgiving by giving witness to the providence of God is a uniquely Christian holiday. Today we give our thanks not to random atoms in the impersonal realm of matter but to a personal creator God. Today we give our thanks to God, not a vague and impersonal force mindlessly running through all things, not some weak and wimpy being who has no control over the world, but the sovereign and separate person who plans every detail of our lives. As today on Thanksgiving, 
Christianity comes to its own logical expression and to its own exclusive expression. Christians give thanks because Christians and only Christians understand the providence of God. It all comes down to Jesus telling us, consider the lilies. Consider the lilies. And when things are going rough, consider the lilies. And when things are going well, consider the lilies. And when you're worried about the future, consider the lilies. Consider the lilies that they don't fret. And yet God, in all of his wisdom, is able to take care of them and to clothe them in a way that is more glorious than Solomon. Consider the lilies, Christian. You're the only one in this world who is able to do it and to give thanks to God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you might open up our eyes to see what a glorious privilege it is today to come here and worship you, to stand before you and say thank you because you are a personal God, a God who knows us inside and out, who besets us before and behind, who is with us and whose hand is upon us and upon our lives, governing and directing and sustaining in every detail. God, we do give you sincere thanks this day. We thank you, of course, for the many particular gifts and blessings that stand out in our mind. We know they all come from you. But Lord, more fundamentally, more universally and persistently, we would give you thanks because of who you are, that in the most general and fundamental way, you control everything, that we live in a personal universe where we have come to know you, and you are doing all things for our good if we love you and are called according to your purpose. Father, help us to see ourselves that way today, to see ourselves as in love with you and dedicated to your purposes in the world. And in so seeing, can know that all things work together for good. How we thank you for this assurance and this confidence, a blessing above all others, to know that we have a personal relationship with a God that will take care of our every need. We thank you in Jesus Christ, for we know that it's only in him that we have this relationship and enjoy these blessings. In his name we pray. Amen.